Uh, turn to Amos chapter 4. Yes, you heard me, Amos chapter 4. Um, I'm sure many churches across the valley are digging into Amos this morning. Um, I mean, I hope they are. Uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful book, and so far we have uh, enjoyed ourselves. And so turn to Amos 4, and as you, as you turn there, and as we continue our journey in this book, as we're going through Amos, today will get interesting, all right? From an odd reference to cows to the use of sarcasm, this text has it all. Aren't you glad you're here this morning? It actually has the making of a wonderful sitcom, all right? <laughs> now, though I say that in jest, both of those techniques we're going to see this morning, they actually deliver quite a punch, <laughs> They actually deliver a punch that will have, I believe, all of us considering and thinking about our lives. Now, with that prep, let's look at the first three verses of chapter 4. I'm going to read those. You can follow along on your screens or look at your uh, Bibles as well. So, chapter 4 of Amos 1 through 3. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Yes, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Verse three, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. The context of Amos is God writing to his people. And what we have learned so far is they have drifted quite a distance away from God. Each time we're in the book, we're learning more and more. And this morning, we will get to, dare I say, the heart of their problems. Last week, we looked at several clear statements of indicating that they are not clueless to who they are supposed to be. And here, there's a shift to address a specific group of people called the cows of Bashan. Now, you might be asking, who are these people? Who are these cows of Bashan, now I would admit that is a good question and the right question. And dare I say, an interesting question. But as I believe, God's word is understandable. And so I think just from the text itself, we can see some things that we can learn about them. Who are these people? Maybe um, as we begin to dive in, perhaps the first thing we should deal with that's kind of the first odd thing is that they are called cows of Bashan. Now, what is that all about? Believe it or not, it's actually not a complete insult. You're saying, wait a second, the moment you call someone a cow, doesn't that feel like an insult? Well, yes, but hear me out. It's not a complete insult. Because cows from Bashan, if you were to live there, were well sought after, and they were known for their high quality. Think the best cut of meat you could ever get. 
comes from the cows of Bashan. Because Bashan, this area, was rich in resources. And the cows from that region were well-fed, and therefore they produced the absolute best meat. You go to the restaurant that serves meat from the cows of Bashan because it's good. To be a cow in Bashan is to have all that you need. It was to be fat with resources, if you will. This reference indicates these people have a lot. They have become fat, if you will, with a lot of resources. They have been placed in an important place, in an, in an abundant place, if you will, having all that they need. These cows of Bashan are in a decent place. So here's one thing that we learn, and some of that's regionally located that helps us, but the text gives us a lot of clues of who are these particular people. The second thing that we learn is that they are on the mountain of Samaria. This is a phrase to indicate that they are in high places. Makes sense. They're on a mountain. They're high up. Their view is interesting. And, but not only are they at a high place, there's more than just locale going on here. But it seems to be indicating is they're not just physically living at a place that's higher, but socially and politically, they are on the mountaintop. They have power. Or maybe they're associated with people who have power. Either way we slice it up, they are next to powerful ones that are in Samaria. Here's a way to reference, more specifically, Israel. God's people. They're cows of Bashan, having all that they need, and they're in a location of life that puts them in a powerful place. Well, thirdly, we learn something that's not too flattering, if you will. The third thing we learn is kind of pushed together is that they oppress the poor and crush the needy. Their actions in this place, their actions with all the resources that they have, are helping to do two things. Now, these two things are not a complete surprise to us. We have seen it already several times. We'll see it mentioned again. But their location, what they have, where they are at, is causing two things to occur, or at least helping two things happen. Oppress the poor, crush the needy. Now, whether they are doing the direct actions or whether they're living in a way that perpetuates this oppression and crushing that we've already seen, what we are learning is that they are a part of it. They are a part of the massive, and we could say horrendous, sins against each other. And therefore, because of all of this, it seems God is holding them accountable. Apparently, no one will slip through the right and justifiable actions of God. Apparently, 
No matter whether you're front or center or not, no one's going to slip, slip through God's right, justifiable assessment of your heart and what you are doing. Well, the fourth and, and final thing that we learn about these people, the last thing we read, and this actually gives us kind of our greatest clue of who the cows of Bashan are. It's in the, phrase, the last phrase of verse 1. Here's what it said. They, these cows of Bashan, they say to their husbands, so that gives us a clue, but what do they say? Bring that we may drink. Our final clue is that these people are women, and more specifically what we learn, they're wives of powerful husbands, apparently. And not only are they in this position, but what seems to be most condemning is what they say. It's not that they're in those places, it's just where they are. They're out of place socially, politically. They're out of place with tremendous amount of resources. But what is most condemning is something that reveals their heart. Bring that we may drink. Is this a slam on alcohol? No. What this is indicating and why this is such a condemning indictment is because the way that wine has been referenced throughout Amos and will be referenced again. We've already encountered it several times. Back in chapter 2, 8, and 12, we saw it in chapter 3, we see it in here in 4, we'll see it in chapter 6. This statement, or wine if you will, is used to indicate the joy of taking advantage of people. It highlights enjoying the spoils of their sin against one another. As one scholar put it, and this is so good, they toast to oppression. Oh, bring the wine. Bring the goods. Bring the stuff. So these wives of powerful men are guilty of the same sins as their husbands. They don't care how the wine or goods are acquired. Just bring it so we can... Enjoy it. I don't care how. (laughs) Just bring it. I want to enjoy. Apparently, the corruption of, once again, God's people (laughs) runs deep. Not only are the surface actions so clear... But it runs really deep, and all of God's people from every facet of life are so corrupted. And apparently no one is saying anything. No one is stopping for a second and say, huh, like, is this the best thing to do? Is this appropriate of God's people? Now, though this section continues these specific indictments of Israel, the reason we sectioned it off for today is because I wanted us to really understand. It's, It's interesting, right? This is weird imagery, but yet it's so helpful for you and I today. It was worth pulling it out for a second and say, why? Why this moment? I wanted us to understand what it meant, but I also wanted us to understand That sitting to the side while brothers and sisters dive headfirst into sin is condemning 
as well. That's sobering, isn't it? To think that we can sit on the sidelines and let someone just destroy themselves. Now, I'll admit, it runs a little bit deeper here, right? Because these wives, these people that are enjoying the results of sin, well, they've got major heart issues, right? They don't even notice anything is wrong. Apparently, their desires have grown so selfish, right? So self-centered that they actually don't even see it. They actually don't even care how their desires are fulfilled. What's easy for you and I to just point fingers and say, well, how stupid of them, but where are we? Where are we guilty of ignoring unhealthy habits as long as our own selfish desires are fulfilled? That's a hard one to even think about. Where are we okay with unhealthy habits as long as my desires are fulfilled? Oh, just bring the goods back, right? It was just, I just won't look. So the Lord will act. And this is why today is, is a bit interesting. Because there's so much heart on display. And the heart is hard to deal with, isn't it? The heart is a little bit tricky. Because you could justify and say, oh, but it's not me doing the actions. I'm just back here. But the Lord looks down and says, oh, no, no, no. Your enjoyment of sinful behavior is not good. So the Lord, in his holiness, you catch that according to his holiness? Just a clear way to say, I'm going to do it. I know that's not great English, but that's what the Lord is saying. I'm going to do it. And it's graphic imagery, isn't it? Take away with hooks, with fish hooks. Now, I'm a big fan of fishing. I enjoy that. You ever got a hook in your finger? You're like, oh, it's screaming. It hurts. It's painful. Here there will be utter death and destruction. Like fishermen who pull in their catch, the coming invasion from the Assyrians, we'll see clearly later, will pluck out these self-indulgent women through the breaches and their mighty walls. They'll be cast out into Harmon, denying all their rights, getting them away from their own homeland. Now, you may be wondering whether this is metaphorical or real, because there's a high possibility the Assyrians did actually use hooks to drive the children. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, there is a high possibility. So whether it's metaphorical or real, the point is clear, right? Either way, the Lord is going to see to it that the sins of these people will be held accountable. Brothers and sisters, you cannot hide. I've got to be honest, that's been a sobering thought this week. One of the joys of, of pastoring and getting to preach is you get to study God's Word every day, all day. But you know what also happens? You get kicked around sometimes. And that's good for your soul. It's good for your heart. 
these people tucked away in the back corners who just think we're okay because we're back here. Come to find out the Lord does see. Where are you engaging in unhealthy habits? Where are you letting unhealthy habits run rampant as long as your desires are fulfilled? Brothers and sisters, that's a hard question because it's a heart question. But it's worth evaluating, which leads us to our next section. Because the Lord gives us opportunity to do that. But when we neglect it, well, things happen. Next up, we get Bethel and Gilgal. Anybody visited those places? You know, Blaine, you can't raise your hand. Um, Bethel and Gilgal. Let's read this text, 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. Proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and Gilgad so you can sin. So you can transgress, literally so you can rebel. Amos is saying, hey, come to these places so you can sin? These places are places where the people of God are rebelling against God. So why in the world is Amos speaking the words of God saying, oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Come to Bethel. Yes. Come to Gilgal and sin more. What? <laughs> Come so that you may sin more? Well, if you're like me, it doesn't take long to really appreciate this text. It's called sarcasm. To say this out loud or to say this statement, what does it highlight? the stupidity of that action, right? Doesn't it have that weight on us a little bit? Wait a minute, huh? To say it out loud would cause, hopefully, the people to hear just how silly it sounds. Oh, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't do that, maybe. I mean, have you ever said something out loud and then you say, now that I say that, that sounds kind of bad. Now that that comes out of my mouth and I hear it, I, I ooh, that's not good. And you see, now saying it out loud and, and using a sarcastic statement, it would have had or it should have had the same effect. You see, sarcasm, rightly placed, not overused, <laughs> can be effective. It's kind of helpful to draw out how ludicrous an action really is. Because you would agree, hopefully, it's unthinkable to ask people to go sin. That seems like the most dumb thing to ever do. Oh, no, yeah, come here so you can sin. As especially God's people. You see what Amos is doing? He's, he's highlighting the, just how ludicrous 
how silly, how absurd it would be to do that. But you know, that's not the only thing that draws out the absurdity. There's other things that highlight this. One of the things that highlights the, absurd, the absurdity of this practice is the juxtaposition, yes, I use that word, between worship and sin, right? Doesn't it seem odd to have those two in the same category? You don't find those two together, or at least you shouldn't. How, how do we do spiritual activity, but yet we're sinning? How can that be? You see why dealing with the heart is slippery and hard? How is it that they're engaging in spiritual activity, but yet they are sinning? Well, let's start first with location, and then we're going to get into what they are doing at these so-called places of worship. You see, Bethel and Gilgad have long histories with important events attached to them. You might, rec- you might recall that Bethel was a place where Jacob meets with God. Remember, meets there twice. It was a place where God works on Jacob's heart. He renames him Israel there. Later on, though, when the kingdom is divided, we've already talked about that, Jeroboam, one, not two, sets up a golden calf in Bethel. He then declares to the northern kingdom that they must worship in Bethel. There's no need to go to Jerusalem, though the Lord had given that instruction. Oh, no, no, stay here and worship. Gilgad as well becomes an alternative place to worship. Why? To avoid going to Jerusalem. You see, the belief was that if the people from the north go down to Jerusalem in the south, that they might stay. They might become sympathetic to their brothers and sisters to the south. It is a move of control. Rejecting a clear command of God to keep power localized, if you will. You see, Bethel and Gilgad, though they're not bad places in and of themselves, what do they represent? The corruption of true religion. Now we're starting to get it at a, at a real substantial answer to how a people become so evil. Oh Lord, I know where you told me to go seek you, but I will go seek you on my own terms. You see the trouble with that? You see the difficulty with that? I know you've told me where truth is found, but I'll go to my own place to find my truth. Or shall I say, your truth, with emphasis on my truth. (laughs) You see the, the problem? These places aren't bad, but what they represent is a corrupted heart using spiritual activity to get further away from the Lord. Now we're getting at some real substantial reasons of how does God's people become so far away from him? Thinking they can seek him Find truth in their way, outside of what he has said to do. If you're not making the connection, it's not good. You are not at luxury to just make up whatever you want about God. We come to the ways by which he has told us to learn of him. So the places indicate how far away they are. But what are they doing in these so-called places of worship? Well, on the surface, it kind of has the making of a bona fide time of worship, doesn't it? 
there's sacrifices. <laughs> there's tithes. All right, okay. There's even real specific offerings of a thanksgiving offering and a free will offering. Wow, all of these practices can be found in Leviticus. They can be found in Deuteronomy. All of those things were regular rhythms and habits that Israel was supposed to have, prescribed by the Lord. One, sacrifices are there. Well, that looks good. What are sacrifices? Offerings given to God for various reasons. Now, we're going to see, uh, in, as we look at this text a little bit more, of the focus of these sacrifices, what are they? Their tithe, their thanksgiving, and their free will. But generically, sacrifices, offerings given to God for various reasons. Okay, not, not too bad. But the second thing, and how their, uh, all, their sacrifices are specifically giving, first up is the tithe. Well, what's the tithe? It's the giving of resources that one had. And often, all of that that you gave was used to support the priesthood. But its intent was to connect the promise of land, material things, resources, God's faithfulness. It was to connect all of that to obedience to the Lord's way. How can I say that? Well, take from the land the Lord had given them, and in obedience, give a tithe of it back to God. Right? So see how these things connect. And it's useful to a people of God to Think about the promises of God. And then in thanksgiving, go give that in a tithe. You see, this activity was to connect the provision, or more specifically, connect God's faithfulness to obedience, more specifically, their faithfulness. God's faithfulness yields their faithfulness. That's what the tithe, isn't it kind of beautiful in a way? connecting all the Lord has done and, and being faithful in obedience. If that's the intent, we can safely conclude there's little connection, as we have seen, between God's faithfulness, God's promises, and Israel's faithfulness, obedience to God's ways. It, it, there's no connection. Highlighting in this book so far a lack of obedience to God. They are not even in the right place, <laughs> under the right priest, doing the right things. This sacrifice of a tithe is almost humorous, right? It's almost humorous in that it condemns them more than it shows obedience. It's more condemning than anything. It's taking God's faithfulness to fuel their unfaithfulness. Wow, what a, what a change. Well, another sacrifice they bring is this thanksgiving offering. This is an offering of thanks. That's what it means. Thanks for multiple things, but oftentimes it was thanks for peace. What another humorous moment <laughs> to continue the parody, right, of all of these verses. You come bringing an offering of thanksgiving, yet you do not even realize that you are not at peace with God. The spiritual activity has not made you aware of how much peace you lack with God. They are only thankful in as much they gain more and more and more. Because all of these practices have been corrupted and used to get more. But yet all the while trying to show a godly lifestyle. 
The next offering that we see is they offer a free will offering. Do you notice how it was described? You proclaim the free will offering. The, the insertion of proclaim, doesn't it hint at a self-centeredness of their actions? Proclaim the free will offering. Here I come with the free will offering. Though they are actions prescribed by God. Though they are spiritual actions, yet they are of no use for these people. Do you know what's also humorous about free will offering as well? Is that it was above and beyond. It's given of one's own free will. Here they have attached to something the Lord told them to do to boast of themselves. Look at us. We are taking an extra step in our worship. Aren't we good? Aren't we wonderful? Yet, they are full of immorality. They're full of grievous sins against God and one another. You know what the text says? They love it. This feels like the most condemning thing about the entire situation. They love it. You love it is the last statement hanging upon all these spiritual activities. You love self-centeredness. You love greed. You love pride. But you do not love God. Isn't that amazing? That spiritual activity that looks so wonderful is actually showing that they love self-centeredness, they love greed, they love pride. All of those activities were given to God's people to express love towards him and to keep their hearts close to him and his word. So the question remains, how are they so far away from him? Well, you know what is missing from all these spiritual actions? Go back, look at Leviticus, look at Deuteronomy, and what you're going to understand, what is glaringly missing is a sin offering, atonement, repentance. <laughs> they are doing nothing in their worship time to examine their hearts and to confess their sins. They're doing nothing. Because if they were, they would not be in Bethel doing what was only, only to be done in Jerusalem. If they were, they would not be neglecting justice and mercy towards one another. They would not be committing the sins against one another that they are. And, they, and their faithfulness to God would be deep. There's a glaring omission in their time of worship. Brothers and sisters and those visiting us, when we separate spiritual activity, worship if you will, from our hearts, 
We are nothing more than well-dressed, impoverished people. Well-dressed, but impoverished nonetheless. I did youth ministry for quite a few years, and so this analogy works well. Like when we would go to camp, a bunch of middle school boys. Like cologne sprayed over a body that, that has not bathed in months. We put spiritual activity over a dirty heart. Or maybe I could borrow a phrase from Jesus, white-washed tombs. This morning, in light of our text, I have to ask you, where are you going through the motions and missing your heart? It's a dangerous place to be. It leads to all unhealthy Thinking and practices. You may be wondering, oh, pastor, how can I determine this? Here's an easy way to determine this. When you come here Sunday and engage in worship, but you head out on Monday and engage in worldliness. Notice how I use two W's there? Yeah. But if you come here and engage the Lord, but yet you leave here and throughout the week you engage and unhealthy habits, unhealthy behavior. If you're not the same here as you are during the week, it might be an opportunity to check your heart. Why are those things separated? Don't come here and engage in spiritual activity and leave your heart at the door. We cannot be a church that is not willing to let the words of God permeate our lives first. Because if we don't, we're just spraying cologne over dirty bodies. Smells great for a while, but over time it stinks. And it actually smells worse when you mix them together. Maybe I could pose the question this way. Maybe this works for you. Where are you corrupting spiritual activities and yielding them useless in your life? I'll probably have some uh, checklist people in our midst today. It's good to have a regular rhythm. What's most enjoyable, that your heart engaged with the Lord or that you checked it off? Now, that's a tiny nuanced question. Hey, don't stop reading. Keep reading. What book? Could you be willing to say, Lord, what's most enjoyable in this moment? I can't help, and I've already alluded to think of Jesus' words. Do you know this isn't just an ancient problem? It's a today problem. Jesus makes it plain in Matthew 23 with several woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tie the men to deal and cumin, right? This You go through all the motions, but yet you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind gods, straining out the gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. 
I regularly wash the dishes in our house. It's not my favorite thing to do. If my family saw that I only cleaned the outside so it had an appearance of being clean so I could cut corners, it wouldn't take long to say, Dad, please stop. I'm not eating out of that filthy bowl. (laughs) But the outside's clean. That doesn't matter. Why do you think we should live that way with our lives? It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Jesus also says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You can hide from us. You can hide from me. But the Lord knows what's beyond the surface. Like dead bones and a beautiful casket is a dead soul that is unwilling to engage the heart in all the spiritual activity they engage in. You see, Christ has come to change our hearts, which in turn changes our actions. You cannot have one without the other. We are not changed by adopting more spiritual activities, but by the one we encounter in those activities. It is a fine line. The intent is to change us. The intent is to bring us into fellowship with the Lord so our heart can be laid bare. Let it not be guilty of us to look wonderful on the outside but full of dead bones inside. There's not an easy, quick fix for this. One, two, three, and it'll be great. The easiest thing I can do is to come to spiritual activity Pause for a moment and say, Lord, work on my heart as I engage this activity. I think that's a prayer the Lord is more than willing to answer. If we are a church unwilling to look at our hearts, if we are a church unwilling to repent of our sins, we are useless. This morning, we want you to hear clearly if you're not a follower of Christ. We have looked at an odd text. We've looked at how the Lord is willing to deal with his own people, but the same is true for you. Come to Christ and be made well. He's the only one that can clean the inside of the cup. He's the only one that has the, just the right pad, just the right dishwashing liquid, if you will. He's the one in his sinlessness, in his person, in his work that ultimately cleans us on the inside. It is him and him alone. Let us come to him to have him clean us. And as we become believers, it doesn't change. We continue through the regular habits that God has set out for God's people for centuries to have him clean us. This morning, don't let the work of the Spirit go. Grab someone, believer. Confess to them where the Lord has been working. Grab someone, non-believer, and chat about what it means to know Christ. Just don't leave these moments ignoring what the Lord is doing.
Let's pray. Father God, I'm thankful for your scripture. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful how it penetrates deep, deep into our hearts. And isn't that how you work? You're willing to get into the difficult part of our lives, our heart. And all that you have prescribed, all that you have said, all that you have offered for us to engage in is to be able to expose our hearts and to work to grow us. May we be a people willing and eager to confess our sins, eager to engage in heart work. Father, if there's some among us who don't know you, we pray that, that the message of Christ is clear, that in him is the only means by which we are made well. I pray, Father, that in these moments together you will continue to work, and in the hours ahead and days ahead you will work. And Father, it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.